This is the Psychedelic Theology Podcast, and I'm Caleb Graves, your very sane, very normal host. This is the second episode and second part of a summer series about psychedelics, Christian theology, and death. Last week, we talked about how religion and psychedelics can help us build a relationship with death and our own mortality. If you haven't listened to that already, I'd suggest starting there since some of the ideas we'll be considering today build upon it. Also, please consider subscribing to my Patreon to keep this ministry funded, and remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Sorry that I'm getting this podcast to you so late this month. I have been incredibly busy. I recently had a paper accepted for publication by the Christian Parapsychologist, a journal out of the UK. I also spent a lot of time dialoguing with other open-minded Christians about psychedelics at the Wild Goose Festival just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm gearing up to speak at a few more churches in the near future, which I am very excited for. Today, we're going to talk about the afterlife, particularly the concepts of heaven and hell. I grew up in an old-time religion sort of household. The world was very, very simple. There were three realms of existence. You lived on earth now. If you died after accepting Jesus into your heart, you went to heaven forever. If you died without accepting Jesus, well, you got to burn in hell for all eternity in torturous fire. I suspect that if you grew up Christian or around Christians in America... This is more or less the cosmology that you learned as well, even if the whole heaven and hell thing wasn't so clear-cut. Psychedelics have long been connected to this binary of heaven and hell. Even the word, psychedelic, was created by Humphrey Osmond in a rhyme about heaven and hell. Quote, To fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. This was in relation to the subjective experiences of euphoria and terror, which psychedelics can evoke in good and difficult trips alike. It was meant in a more metaphorical sense to Humphrey, yet some people's trip reports explicitly depict heaven and hell in quite vivid ways. The trip of an alcoholic being treated with LSD is recorded in Dr. William Richard's book Sacred Knowledge. The man describes being snatched up from the earth, quickly brought up through the sky and the clouds into a realm of overwhelming beauty and light. He declared this was God and this must be heaven. Personally, and on the other end of the spectrum, I remember one very difficult trip where I ingested far too much magic mushrooms and LSD at the same time. In this trip, I was in complete darkness until a portal split open before me, and I saw a volcanic, burning pit filled with millions of people. In the center of this pit was a dismembered, eyeless man nailed to a cross, screaming for me to escape. But I could not escape. I was stuck in this bad trip, at least for a little while. I eventually came out of that headspace, which is usually how difficult trips go. You can get out of it. And my trip sitter took good care of me. I suffered no long-term damage from the trip. And I think this really demonstrated to me how powerful these substances were. 
And it led me to deal with years of trauma and abuse from being taught the utter nonsense that I'd burn in hell eternally for mild offenses. Really, I think that for some people in psychedelic subculture, heaven and hell have become a binary in which we categorize our trips. Good trips are heavenly, bad trips are hellish. This binary categorization is probably about 70 years old and baked into our subculture. In 1956, Aldous Huxley published an essay called Heaven and Hell, which really baked this idea into psychedelic subculture. It introduced this trope at a time when psychedelics were in their infancy. Magic mushrooms were still months away from being introduced to Western science, and Timothy Leary wouldn't try LSD for another five years. This is how early the binary psychedelic allegory of heaven and hell was published into mainstream thought, associated with good and bad trips. Huxley himself declared that the two sorts of psychedelic experiences could be split into the blissful or heavenly and the terrible or hellish. Later in his essay, he tries to fit the opposites of heaven and hell into a monistic framework through a mystical analysis. Although he believes that psychedelics provide these polar opposite experiences, he also says that, quote, visionary experience is not the same thing as mystical experience. Mystical experience is beyond the realm of opposites. Visionary experience is still within that realm. Heaven entails hell, and going to heaven is no more liberation than is the descent into horror. Here, Huxley also introduces the monistic approach to psychedelics. Although the visionary experiences therein might be good or bad, heavenly or hellish, they can also lead to knowledge of ultimate oneness, that there is really ultimately no difference between the two. Once one understands the mystical unity of all things, according to Huxley, heaven and hell are interpreted quite similarly. But I'd like to take our discussion of death, heaven, hell, the afterlife, in a completely different direction. Instead of collapsing our understanding of the afterlife and psychedelic experiences into a single monistic mystical essence, I want us to broaden our mind to a much wider map of sacred cosmic space. Especially in the Protestant Church, we have a very poor, basic cosmology. Really, it's just earth, heaven, hell, as I previously stated. Though if you're a progressive Christian, you might only believe in heaven and earth, with hell being abolished to the realm of superstition. But there was once a time in Christian history when we had a much broader map of the divine terrain. I can remember at a young age coming across parts in the Bible that seemed to hint at a greater sacred cosmology. Particularly, I'm thinking of Abraham's bosom and the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The idea that there could be more unseen realms of the divine fascinated me. As I got older and studied the scriptures in undergrad under the tutelage of my ever-patient Professor Greenwood, 
I discovered even more places that existed in Christian cosmology that went far beyond heaven and hell. The Hebrew Bible talks about how the earth can open up and swallow bad people into Sheol, the pit, or the abyss, as it was called. Or in 2 Corinthians 12, we even read that Paul traveled to the third heaven, either in the body or in a vision. This third heaven, or heaven of heavens, is mentioned throughout the Bible and second temple literature around the time that Paul lived. And it was described as a liminal place where mortal humans could encounter an immortal God. The Bible also seems to hint at a paradise which is different from heaven itself. For Jesus tells the thief on the cross that they will be together in paradise that day. But John 20.17 says Jesus had not gone to the Father yet after his death and resurrection. As one final example, and there's several more, 1 Peter 3.19 mentions that Jesus freed spirits from prison, which doesn't quite sound like the comforting Abraham's bosom. Quite simply, even just looking at the Christian and Jewish scriptures, we see a complicated cosmology made up of far more than earth, heaven, and hell. And this doesn't even count other cosmic realms thought up throughout Christian history, like purgatory, limbo, the psychic realm, and aerial toll houses, some of which we'll get to later in this podcast. When we survey trip reports, and there are millions of them out there, I think it's obvious that we need to move away from categorizing psychedelic experiences as heaven or hell, good or bad. Instead, we need to have a broader cosmological imagination like we see in the Bible. We need to recognize that the primary nature of tripping, to quote Terence McKenna, is that it is unspeakably bizarre. And we need to have an open mind towards whatever that beautiful bizarreness brings for us to experience. This can be especially clear when we start looking at experiences caused by particularly strong psychedelics, such as NNDMT or 5-MeO-DMT. NNDMT is particularly known for its bizarre creation of space. It's as if you are launched into another realm altogether. Even at moderate doses of DMT, individuals can become completely unaware of their surroundings, immersed in an entirely different universe of impossible geometry, colors, and even beings that seem to be completely different from the tripper's consciousness. When listening to trip reports about DMT, it's hard to imagine describing the experience as heaven or hell. It's just a journey through the bizarreness of the cosmos with all the wild, wonderful weirdness that it has to offer. Let's look real quick at a handful of trip reports with some things in common to get a handle on how broad psychedelic spatial experience is. For instance, some of these experiences are distinctly alien, resembling science fiction. In his book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, Dr. Rick Strassman records this trip report provided by subject with the pseudonym Jeremy. Quote, it was a nursery, a high-tech nursery with a single Gumby 
three feet tall, attending me. I felt like an infant. Not a human infant, but an infant relative to the intelligence presented by the Gumby. It was aware of me, but not particularly concerned. Sort of a detached concern, like a parent would feel looking into the playpen at his one-year-old laying there. Another Reddit user described being in a literal spaceship in the middle of a DMT trip, saying, I was in this spaceship working on a cosmic quantum computing lab to develop a way to harvest the energy of the sun. There was a clear sense of levels to my experience. I didn't know how to increase my level, but it was clear when I did because I was granted access to more areas of the ship. I had my own office slash lab, and there were people there who knew me. One very curious and repeated psychedelic motif is immersion in places that resemble ancient Egypt. Over time, I've heard or read hundreds of trip reports from friends, colleagues, and strangers, and many of them include explicitly ancient Egyptian themes. Dark deserts with enormous pyramids and scarabs on top, or eternal tombs filled with ever-moving, mysterious hieroglyphs. Dr. Kerry Mullis, a Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, once declared that, quote, when you take 1,000 micrograms of LSD, you don't know you've taken anything. It just feels like that's the way it always has been. You might suddenly find yourself sitting on a building in Egypt 3,000 years ago, watching boats on the Nile. Likewise, the Israeli linguist Benny Shannon reports multiple ayahuasca visions containing scenes of ancient Egypt. In one vision he saw, quote, the shores of the Nile. There I saw people of various persuasions, farmers, fishermen, government officials. All were engaged in their daily work. In another vision, he also saw, quote, ancient Egyptian pharaohs. In all cases, I was invited to step in, stay in the corner, and witness the monarchs as they ruled. I was given the chance to observe the challenges and difficulties that absolute power presents. This linguist also conducted a survey of a small number of psychedelic ayahuasca users, and his findings indicated that about half of those who had used ayahuasca had images of Egypt during their trips. Then we must infamously have Terence McKenna's Elf Country. This Elf Country, described by the psychonaut Terence McKenna, is where we get the term machine elf that you might hear tossed around. This is a term which has become synonymous with any beings met in psychedelic visions. These beings are described as usually playful, fun little creatures who are curious about what someone like you is doing in their realm. Listen to McKenna describe the spatial arrival of the machine elves in this clip from his speech, Countdown to Complexity. 
when I take psilocybin, I sometime in the second hour, I pass through a place which I've learned to recognize. It's a feeling, and I call it elf country. And there are no elves, but there's a feeling. And then I call them. Then they approach like a Nawari band from a distance. You can hear the brass and the drum and it says they get closer and, and it begins as a sound. It's very interesting. It begins as a sound and as it gets louder there comes a point where imperceptibly it becomes visible. And then all I can say is it gets bigger just like someone marching toward you through three-dimensional space. And so it goes from being a little phenomenon on the horizon of your awareness to you're there, you're with them, you're playing the tuba, you're marching along, it's happening. And then they sort of peel off and march away and leave you in the same way they came. The archetype of this phenomenon, as far as I can tell, is the archetype of the circus. DMT is somehow the cosmic circus. As otherworldly as experiences like the machine elf band might seem, things are about to get a lot more off the wall with the help of modern medicine. Right now, there's a program underway called the Extended State DMT Program, or DMTX. You see, DMT is a pretty special psychedelic. Most psychedelics create tolerance that lasts a reasonable amount of time, about two weeks. But DMT does not have such a tolerance. This means if you were going to smoke DMT at 10 o'clock in the morning, which I don't suggest, then you could take it again at 10.30 or 11. And if you were going to take it intravenously through your veins in an injection or a drip of some sort, you could stay entirely in the DMT state for an extended period of time. This means that the steady state of somebody put under anesthesia for surgery could be the sort of state that someone experiences in the world of DMT magic. Intrepid psychonauts could be given a consistent high dosage of DMT several times greater than that of ayahuasca, keeping them in this realm. Instead of being bewildered by the machine-elf orchestral procession for a couple of minutes, like Terence McKenna describes, researchers can now have subjects remain in this place for hours, as you might think maybe for an entire concert. While this might sound like a B-script movie, this is science fact, and studies are soon to be released about the reports of people who wandered the DMT landscape for far longer than should ever have been possible. Just imagine the kind of spaces people may report from these extended trips. This seems even more alien to me than placing human beings on the moon. The possibilities are far more endless than just a gray rock. Think about just these few examples that I've provided here. Psychedelic experiences can seem to take us to quantum spaceships, intelligent Gumby nurseries, pseudo-ancient Egyptian deserts, and the realm of elves.
none of this sounds much like heaven and really also not much like hell either. It just seems uncontrollably wacky. Perhaps it is because Huxley's psychedelic experiences were limited to moderate doses of LSD and mescaline. But however this has come to be, his paradigm of categorizing psychedelic experiences as heavenly or hellish, good or bad, it just doesn't fit the wide variety of experiences out there. And just as psychedelics push our bounds of mental space and experiential categories, perhaps they should cause Christians and anyone with spiritual curiosity in general to begin reclaiming and re-exploring the vast array of other worlds that Abrahamic scriptures and tradition offer us far beyond heaven and hell. I remember being infatuated with the idea of one Buddhist tradition that has the many Buddha lands that are as infinite as the sands on the seashore and all of which can be explored in one lifetime or another. This has set my life on fire, my mind ablaze with the idea that maybe Christians have just simplified things too much. And there is also an infinite cosmos for us to explore infinite opportunities that we must open our minds to about what the spirit world contains. We need to imagine and explore cosmic space, and this is not a new tradition, something thought up by New Age minds in the 21st century, but instead something that starts very early in Christian tradition. The Shepherd of Hermas is one particularly good place to start. It is my favorite New Testament or early Christian apocryphal work. Now, if you're not particularly interested in history, you're going to have to stick with me for a second. This book was compiled around 140 CE. That's about 110, 115 years after Jesus died and a couple decades after the last book of the New Testament was written. But some of the sources that the Shepherd of Hermas contains are older than the New Testament books. So if you've ever read 1st or 2nd Timothy or Titus, these are works that are probably uh, written after the sources that we see in the Shepherd of Hermas. And the Shepherd's canonicity was highly debated too. It was recorded in the Codex Sinaiticus, it was also counted by Eusebius among debated canonical books. Right alongside the Shepherd of Hermas, which didn't make it into the New Testament, we see books that did, like Revelation or the Epistle of James. So even though this work was eventually left out of the Christian Bible, it was still highly influential and many church fathers cited it as proof of their theology. Hermes' visions are filled with spirit lands that, at least superficially, resemble what I imagine Terence McKenna's elf country would probably be like. An angel, or shepherd, takes Hermes to the land of Arcadia in a vision. While Arcadia was a real mountainous region on a Greek island, it was also a visionary, sacred place within Greek mythology. This space was filled with gods, but also nymphs, fauns, satyrs, and other playful creatures 
especially those known for their love of music, dance, and good parties. Hermas describes how his angelic guide left him to party in Arcadia with twelve young women who were very much like nymphs, or again, perhaps like elves. Hermas reports that, quote, It was as if I had become a younger man, and I even began to party with them. Some of them began to dance and skip, others to sing. And like the awkward kid who is clearly enjoying himself at a party but might have taken an edible that was a little too strong and has to sit in the corner, Hermas also says that he was, quote, quiet and walked with them around the tower, enjoying himself with them. Hermas later learned that these young women were spirits embodying the virtues, and he comes back from his visionary adventure excited to integrate his dance party with the nymphs or spirits or elves of Arcadia into his everyday life. Quite simply, Christianity can, has, and must make space for an ever-expanding map of diversity, queerness, and weirdness. From places we already described, like the Third Heaven or Arcadia, to spots that today we just weren't able to mention, like Teresa of Avila's interior diamond castle. It's time for Christians to open up our minds. Psychedelics are challenging us to think beyond a boring two- or three-part world of heaven and hell. It's time for us to reclaim cosmological imagination. For if we believe that the God of the universe is ultimately beyond words, ultimately mysterious, ultimately beyond any thought we could ever have, why should we assume that the domain in which she and her angels dwell is any less befuddling? I think that this acceptance of befuddlement of bizarreness, of the wackiness, can also help free us from certain anxieties about death, especially if we were brought up in a church culture that taught us to be afraid. We were given sort of mixed messages, I think. On the one hand, that we weren't supposed to be afraid of death because we would be leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ, but also that we should be truly afraid. Because if we didn't do what was right, if we weren't really sincere about our repentance, we'd burn in hell forever. You know, when we take a fat hit off a DMT pipe, or swallow a handful of shrooms, whatever happens next is inevitable, and we need to trust the process and trust the medicine. At that point, we're just along for the ride now, with no real knowledge of what kind of wacky, wild worlds await us. And if we let go, stop fighting, and enjoy the experience, we can at least accept but might be euphoric at whatever comes next. We can be, like Terence McKenna says, playing along with the tuba in the cosmic elf circus. Or we can be like Hermes at the dance party of Arcadia. So, too, with death. None of us really know what comes next. Even if we have strong faith, all that we can really know is symbols, vague ideas, as Paul says, through a mirror darkly. 
We may hear stories of near-death experiences with tunnels of light, star-studded blackness, or even throne rooms of divine beings. But we don't actually know what comes next. One of my favorite songs, called Jesus Christ, is a prayer asking God what happens when one dies, saying, Do I get the gold chariot, or do I just float through the ceiling? But whatever happens next, we can rely on God's abundant, overflowing grace and love. We can be free from the fears and expectations of heaven and hell, and choose to be wrapped in infinite divine love. We can see how big the divine cosmos really is, rest easy in grace, and let go into whatever happens next. After all, death is the only psychedelic journey that everyone will have to take, one way or another. And we might as well all enjoy it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Psychedelic Theology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Right now, uh, I'm paying for all of psychedelic theology out of my own pocket uh, by doing Uber Eats and other such lunch delivery. And while I have no plans to stop, it would mean a lot if I could break even or even have some extra spending money to pay for new books and research materials or travel to learn new things about psychedelics that I can share with you on this podcast or in other forums. So to that end, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Share this podcast with whoever you want, and follow on social media, particularly TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. So until next time, remember, magic is real, enchantment is real, mystery is real, God is real. There is more to this world than grinding soulless machines and resources to fuel them. God bless.